The reading this morning comes from Proverbs 4, 7 through 8, and select verses from Proverbs 5. Proverbs 4, 7 through 8. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Proverbs 5, selected verses. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps to follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders his paths. The inequities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for the lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. I am one of the elders here at Christ City Church Kitsilano, uh, and it is my honor to bring the Word of God uh, for you this morning. Let us pray. Father, I need your help. I need your help to, um, to be able to minister your Word in a way that, uh, that speaks to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you would humble us, you would give us eyes and ears to hear, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would respond in repentance and in faith. Father, please give me boldness and confidence to proclaim your gospel, that the message of grace would abound. In Jesus' name, amen. Three weeks ago, Joshua Harris, former pastor of Covenant Life Church in, Ga- uh, in um, Gaithersburg, Maryland, and author of the books I Kissed Dating Goodbye and Boy Meets Girl, announced publicly that he and his wife, Shannon, were separating. About a week ago, 
He followed up with another announcement, clarifying that separation meant divorce. And more importantly, that by all measurements that he had for defining a Christian, he is not a Christian. The news of his apparent apostasy took much of the church by surprise and shook up the evangelical world. Many of us here at Kitts are deeply saddened by this news. And certainly we ought to be sad whenever a marriage falls apart, and especially when one strays or falls away from the faith. But I think it is especially difficult for us here at Kitts because for many of us, we knew him. We had interacted with him. Those who were part of the bridge, one of the churches that founded uh, Christ City Church Kitsilano, had helped him move into his house in Vancouver. He had spoken at the bridge. He had preached also to neighboring churches. He was here on our lunch day. Others who had gone to region in the last few years also knew him as a fellow student. And then there were those who, like me and Karen, had invited him and his family to our homes for dinner and otherwise shared a meal with him. Personally, Harris had an even greater impact. Nearly 20 years ago, during a very trying season of my relationship with Karen, while we were still dating, the Lord used his book, Boy Meets Girl, to knock me out of my immaturity. Apart from the captivating and romantic story about how he and Shannon met, probably the biggest takeaway from this book is that my relationship with Jesus, my fear of the Lord, has a very, very direct impact on the health of my marriage. Understand, as I have shared from this pulpit before, that giant questions abounded in my head as a young man in my 20s. How is it possible that uh, to be a godly husband and father when, when my parents' marriage was in such a disarray? Regardless of your opinion of Harris's books, his often prescriptive, persuasive, dare I even say faith-filled words pointed me to Christ. They were a means of grace to me at a time when I desperately needed to hear, to repent, and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as a, as a people that cling dearly to the cross, who, if it were not for the, for the grace of God, we would likely find ourselves in the same predicament as Harris today. We pray earnestly for a redemptive end. And as such, I don't think it is wise to offer much more comment other than to say how much this recent turn of events adds gravity and weight to what I'm about to preach today. You see, the topic of marriage, of promiscuity, of sexual ethics, and its relation to our faith in Jesus Christ was also one of Harris's favorite, shall we say, pet peeve topics after all. And for all the foolishness that has been displayed, one thing is apparent. He was right to say that marriage, sexual fidelity, and spiritual fidelity are related. In fact, Proverbs scholar Bruce Walkey 
puts it much more graphically. He says this, sexual and spiritual infidelity interpenetrate each other. In both Harris's affirmation of the biblical view and now the repudiation of it and of his marriage, that much has been apparent. And so it is with a very deep sense of soberness and reverence that I approach this delicate topic of marriage and promiscuity today that is so pervasive to the human experience. My aim this morning is twofold. First, that, that you would hear clearly the strong admonitions of Solomon in Proverbs concerning marriage, concerning adultery, concerning promiscuity. But more importantly, that you would gain a keen sense of the why behind this wisdom. My outline this morning is as follows. Number one, marry wisdom. Marry wisdom. Number two, don't fool around with folly. Don't fool around with folly. And number three, be attentive to wisdom and walk the path of life in faith. Be attentive to wisdom and walk the path of life in faith. So let's dive in. First, Mary Wisdom. I'm so glad that the Smiths are here. They, they love puns. The Proverbs are full of puns. They're full of metaphors and double meanings. And the topic of marriage is no exception. Solomon seeks to warn his son about the very practical matters of marriage and sex, and yet he speaks at another level altogether by personifying wisdom and folly as rival women. The double entendre is intentional. You see, there is a vertical dimension as well as a horizontal dimension to wisdom. Walkie says this, one must decide between wisdom begotten by God and folly that stands as wisdom's rival. After all, wisdom is not merely knowing what to do in a given situation. The Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9.10, wisdom comes from above. Put it another way, wisdom illustrates or displays the wisdom of God. We are to get her, to treasure her, to seek her as the worthiest object of love. Think back to the time when perhaps you were attracted to someone. You saw someone really beautiful that caught your attention. Did you not want to do everything in your power to try to get to know her or him? Proverbs 4, 7 through 9 says that. It reminds us, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Similarly in Proverbs 7, 4. The son is exhorted to say, to declare marriage to wisdom, being intimate with insight in order to keep from the forbidden woman. You know, many scholars have pointed out that, that the personification of wisdom points to 
or is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about this mystery in Ephesians 5 when Paul speaks of how Christ loved the church. And again in Revelation 21 at the end of time, at the consummation of time. But I think the clearer link, at least in Proverbs, is in the sense of covenant. If we are to marry wisdom, we are to covenant with her and not someone else. The point is actually made in contrast or by contrast when we look at the forbidden woman in Proverbs 5 and 7. You see, the forbidden woman refers not only to one who sleeps around, but a woman who was outside the covenant people of God, that was outside the covenant community of God. God had covenanted with Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he covenants with the church. And that covenant and that intimacy is pictured most prominently in terms of marriage. The bride of Christ being the church and the Christ being the bridegroom. But even in all of what I've just said, that's not entirely clear. You may get the sense that all of these metaphors that I've just talked about, you know, wisdom's relationship with the Son, God's relationship with Israel, Christ's relationship with the church, is like that of marriage. But you see, this is where we often get it flipped around. As one commentator points out, Christ and the church don't illustrate marriage. Marriage illustrates Christ and the church. Let me say that again. Christ and the church don't illustrate marriage. Marriage illustrates Christ and the church. In other words, if we understand this glorious and this intimate picture that the Bible paints of the relationship between wisdom and Christ, or relationship with wisdom and Christ, then all other wisdom, especially in the areas of marriage, sex, and promiscuity, begin to make sense. Take, for example, Proverbs 18.1, juxtaposed against Proverbs 18.22. Proverbs 18.1 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks to his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. By the way, do you hear in that sort of echoes of Genesis 2.18? It's not good that man should be alone. We're designed to be people who are in relationship with one another. Now, now juxtapose 18.1 with 18.22, which says this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I see Karen nodding over there. And obtains favor from the Lord. You know, of course, there is a, a superficial way of looking at these verses, Right? But the reason we are not to isolate ourselves is because we fail to image the relational and covenantal God. Our God is a relational God. Even He is not alone, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the reason it is a good thing to find a wife is because our God is a covenantal God. He desires to be in relationship, in covenant with his people. He redeems a people for himself, and he promises to be with them forever. It illustrates Christ and the church. 
this work continues, this continues to work itself out as we look at sex. Ask any grade 9 teenager what preoccupies their mind and provided they haven't run away after you've asked the question in horror. They will tell you that the desire for sex pervades their thoughts. You know, having skipped grade 9, uh, no, I, have, I didn't skip grade 9, so having skipped a grade in elementary school, when I arrived in grade 9, I was a little, uh, uh, I would say, let's say a, a late bloomer, okay? Uh, so I hadn't quite reached puberty. And so one day, as a bunch of us stood outside the classroom waiting for the classroom doors to open, I remember looking very inquisitively perplexed as my female friend of mine, a female friend of mine who hadn't yet quite learned the art of discretion, kept squirming and verbalizing her thoughts about what she wanted to do with her boyfriend later. Of course, as adults living in a much more civilized society outside the hormonal bubble of high school, We've learned, for the most part, to control these expressions of these urges. But our sexuality seems to be this perpetual reminder that there is something within us that is outside of our control. These desires seem to come out of nowhere. But this, too, is by design in order that we might point, that it might point us to a greater gospel reality. Sex is designed to illustrate the giving of oneself fully to one another. Friedrika Green writes this, quote, How could we understand what it's like for two to become one? Union without annihilation. God came up with a a human experience that would be universal, common, and enjoyable, and said, here, this is what it's like. This is where you're going. Russell Moore, author of the book, The Storm-Tossed Family, comments on this insight. He writes, Frederica is exactly right. The sexual union is a vivid signpost of the gospel reality of two persons who remain personally distinct and yet joined together in one unified ecstatic mystery. And for that reason, because sexuality is charged with joyous mystery, sexuality is an ongoing arena of spiritual conflict. Wow. To be wise, therefore, in our marriages and in our sexuality is first and foremost to be faithful to wisdom. Marry wisdom. Be intimate with insight. Remember our covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And look at the world through the lens of a faithful God who covenants with his people. Isn't that glorious? Brings me to my second point. Don't fool around with folly. Don't have an affair with folly. You see, I've just painted this beautiful picture, and yet that is not what happens often, is it? You know, even in preparing this message, it is so tempting to think that all of the seemingly 
metaphorical language of marrying wisdom and of Christ in the church, that it's really just kind of fantastical that here's Jonathan flying at 50,000 feet and not addressing the day-to-day issues of marriage and sexuality. Don't worry, I am getting to that. You know, it jars with this cultural notion that somehow um, marriage and sexuality is this vehicle for self-actualization. That tension, though, I think is the point in Proverbs. Will we remain faithful to wisdom or will we fool around with folly? Our fidelity to Christ shows up in our day-to-day Reality. It shows up in our day-to-day marriages, our relationships, and our sexuality. The temptation is to reverse the metaphors and see the greater reality of Christ as like our created order. In pride, we reverse the relationship and we end up worshiping the created rather than the creator. Solomon gives very stern warnings when it comes to having an affair with folly. He warns us against the words of the forbidden woman. Consider Proverbs 5, 3 through 4. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Christians ought to think of the contrast between that and that of Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of, uh, of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the hearts, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. By the way, the point here isn't that women um, are always a seductress and that men are the ones falling for her. Men can be just as manipulative and persuasive and charming when it comes to the perversion of our words. The point here is that our words matter. Solomon also warns against our actions. Proverbs 5, 8 warns, Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Proverbs 7, 7 to 8 speaks of a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner and taking the road to her house in the twilight. He warns against looks. Proverbs 6.25 warns, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. In all of the senses, Solomon paints a picture for us of how we can be tempted to pervert the gift of marriage and of sexuality for our own pleasures. Solomon goes on to warn that fooling around has real consequences. He speaks of regret, for instance, in 5, 12 through 13. How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. He speaks of being shunned and rejected by his community in 5, 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Here's one that we can relate to. He speaks of entrapment in 522. The inequities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. 
or 722. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as the bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And I think that is the most insidious part of fooling around with folly. We become trapped and blind to the consequences consequences that ultimately end in eternal death. 727, her house is the way to Sheol, that's hell, going down to the chambers of death. Or 917 and 18, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. We fool around to our peril. I've seen these consequences firsthand. Many of you know that growing up, my dad was a serial adulterer. He was serially unfaithful to my mom with other women. And not only did this cause obvious marital conflict within my parents' marriage, I saw firsthand the devastation that that this sin brought upon the mental state of my mom, the fear of man that it placed on my sister, the lingering relational uh, problems that it brought between me and my dad. But more so, I saw a man who began his marriage by illustrating his fidelity to the Lord and then the slow decline to a hard heart and unbelief. It's very sad. For many of us, our affair with folly is maybe not quite as dramatic or visible. Even in today's context, with easy, uh, especially in today's context, with easy access to pornography and the seeming harmlessness of lustful masturbation to illicit images in one's mind or screen, the promiscuity of the day can be so hidden. Quiet moments of sipping from stolen water wells, of lacking sense and googling terms we really shouldn't be googling. And yet, pornography is killing our marriages. It's killing our marriages because it continually and it systematically both trivializes and deifies sexuality at the same time. It trivializes it because it is seen as not having any permanent effect other than maybe the uh, orgasmic moment of feeling good. And it deifies it at the same time by elevating it and elevating the experience of sexual union with another apart from its gospel intended usage and image. Not to mention that often these experiences are brought into the, the real bedroom. Among both men and women, and I've had conversations with several of you this week, the motivations of escaping from reality into one's fantasies, lust, and self-pleasure seem harmless, but is in fact the way to 
death. Consider that in our lustful self-pleasuring, we pervert the function of marriage and sex. And if indeed, as I alluded to earlier, that sex functions as a foretaste of the intimacy that will be with Christ and his church, a total giving of oneself for the service of another, then does that not imply that Pornography and self-pleasuring points to a people without Christ. Does that not imply that pornography and self-pleasuring points to a people without Christ? Here's another example. Premarital sex. Those of us who grew up in church, especially if you grew up in the youth group, often heard that premarital sex is a no-no. And rightly so. But we often fail to understand the why, apart from the fact that maybe your youth pastor told you so, with your parents' very enthusiastic agreement, and the seemingly obvious consequences of STDs, of unwanted pregnancies, and perhaps the shunning within your community. But let's, let's, let's be real here. Even those consequences nowadays can be mitigated with careful birth control, with the avoidance of actual intercourse by engaging in oral sex or mutual masturbation. And for the most part, that is what our culture preaches in order to get around this problem, isn't it? But the Proverbs speak of a greater reason Even the term premarital sex belittles this problem. You know, couples who have sex outside of marriage often assume that the problem has an expiry date. After all, once you're married, it seems that the problem or the sin disappears after the wedding ceremony. (laughs) But to say this merely means that we do not understand the real problem. Namely, that we have failed to see that our behavior in premarital sex, points, as Moore says, to an icon of Christ that is not bonded in covenant to his church. Whoa. That is a scary thought. Can you, can you imagine if Christ died for nothing? In other words, our hearts have chosen folly instead of wisdom. The issues of having an affair with folly is not merely relational or social, but it's one of pride and idolatry. Heath Lambert, the author of a a book called Finally Free, uh, probably one of the best books on fighting pornography and sexual immorality, states this point blank. He says, quote, If you look at pornography, you are arrogant. If you look at pornography, you are arrogant. Bruce Walkley says this, A sexual adulterer proves himself incapable of having a single eye toward God. Solomon's sexual infidelity stole away his heart from loving God because his sex life was married to his spiritual life. The prophets prophets frequently used marriage as a metaphor for Israel's, for Israel's relationship with the Lord. 
And that ultimately is the point. It is not about behavioral modification, but about heart change. It's not about behavioral modification, but about heart change born out of wisdom. And so that brings me to my third point. Be attentive to wisdom and walk the path of life in faith. Be attentive to wisdom and walk the path of life in faith. If the Bible is indeed true and sharper than a two-edged sword, then many of you, including me, ought to feel pretty convicted right about now. Proverbs 5.21 For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. You see, the standard is high. And if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we all fall short in this area. Jesus' words in Matthew 5.28 ring in my ears that even if we have looked lustfully upon a woman, we have committed adultery in our hearts. So what are we to do? What is the way forward? You know, there's a fear-based way that ultimately is not helpful. It's been prevalent in the church. The fear-based way is try harder and place as many barriers as one can so that one doesn't ruin their purity. Be fearfully cautious when interacting with members of the opposite sex. That perhaps is what has led to an unhealthy subculture within some evangelical circles of shame and guilt when one does fall into sexual sin. But the way of wisdom, of the cross, of grace, is not like this. You see, while the Bible tells of Jesus coming for his bride, the church, there was only one virgin in that equation. Jesus was the virgin. His bride wasn't. He loved us anyway. None of us are pure. None of us are pure. We have all wandered away from wisdom and fooled around with folly. We have been like prostitutes and johns trading in our pleasures for a loaf of bread. Proverbs 6.26 And yet despite this, Jesus comes. He asks for our hand in marriage. And like the story of Hosea and Gomer, Jesus, the bread of life, purchases us back from our pimp by going to the cross, shedding his blood to pay the bride price. Even though we were perpetually unfaithful, he brought us back. He bought us back. And so the way forward is like any other sin. Repent. Look up and look to the cross. Believe upon the gospel that Jesus has come to the cross to, to 
to pay for. First, confess your sin. Bring it to the light. Tell someone about it. Ask them to pray for you and with you. Seek their help in humility. Talk to a counselor. Talk to a pastor. Second, we can be attentive to wisdom and walk forward in faith. Well, what do I mean by that? What does that look like practically? Proverbs 5, 15 through 19 gives us the answer. It says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Who said the Bible is boring? Again, there's a double entendre here. For you married folks, it means quite plainly, go have sex with your spouse regularly. (laughs) Seriously, this is what Solomon is saying. Not merely because it will produce lots of kids, Fred. (laughs) Nor merely for pleasure. But because it is a covenant renewal designed to draw you and your spouse together in unity. And if your spouse needs an excuse, quote Ephesians 1.10, that in Christ he unites all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so go have sex with your spouse regularly. Pray regularly, too, (laughs) for the singles. Renew your covenant before the Lord. Why do you think we have communion weekly? It is a picture. It is a visible sign of covenant renewal. So drink deeply of the cup. Eat heartedly in faith. And then direct that God-given, that other directed energies of your sexuality towards something else. Serve God and neighbor fervently. I recognize that there are those in here that may be ensnared by habitual sin, habitual sexual sin this morning. And... To these I want to add, because I've talked a lot about the why, and I haven't really talked that much about the how, and that's somewhat intentional. There are a lot of books on the how, uh, but I will comment very briefly on this. Yes, it is wise to install some barriers and some boundaries. The Proverbs speak in very practical terms. Don't go near to the door of her house, for instance. It is wise, for instance, to radically amputate our devices, if that causes you to stumble, to install software like Covenant Eyes, to have an accountability partner, to speak about these things with brothers and sisters, to bring it into the light like I have told you. If you are regularly tempted to pornography or sexual immorality, it is wise, for example, for me not to walk along Kitts Beach alone, especially in the summer. But we install those barriers in faith and in wisdom 
not out of fear. And that's a very, very important distinction. We are Christians that walk by faith, not out of fear. We fight promiscuity with folly by being attentive to wisdom, by walking in faith. Let me close by saying this. It is popular, so popular in today's world, in today's culture, to divorce or deconstruct the relationship between our sexual fidelity and our spiritual fidelity. To redefine the meaning of marriage and to revise our sexual ethics. But beware of the warning in Proverbs 9.12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. You see, sexual and spiritual fidelity are related because the Bible is and remains true. It is encouraging that those of us who call ourselves Christians base our sexual ethics not on a set of constructed standards or concepts, but upon the revealed Word of God, which proclaims the greatest love story ever told, that of God redeeming a people for himself, despite their impurity and unfaithfulness. It is objective truth. We can bring our shame before the Lord. We can bring our guilt before the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, we have received the, from the fullness of Christ grace upon grace. It is grace that we can stand here today and hear the word of God read. It is grace that we can hear it preached. It is grace that we can hear it expounded upon. It is grace that we can even repent and believe. Our faith stands on the constructs of grace. And therefore, what God has joined together... Let man not separate. As people who remain in the word, how much more attentive ought we be to pay attention and incline our ear to the voice of wisdom? Let's pray. Father, this is a deeply convicting message. Even as I prepared it, I am so convicted. And yet, we find in contrast your abundant, abiding love for us. Your deep mercy for us. So, Father, help us to be a people. Give us grace to look up, to look at the cross, and to find forgiveness. And help us, especially for the married folks in here, to be faithful to our spouses, to walk and fight the fight of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that if there are people that are struggling with sin this morning, that they would confess it 
that you would give them the strength, the boldness to confess it, to bring it to the light, and to find the abundant grace that you offer. That you would give them the power, the ability to find freedom and deliverance from the sin. For the sin is not just a behavior sin. It is it is spiritual warfare. And so we fight by the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight these things knowing that our sexual and our spiritual fidelity are are intimately related. In the precious holy lovely name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.